This is episode 83 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this episode, you'll hear about the strange friendship between Ira Davenport and Houdini. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast, your podcast home for magic history. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode 83. Uh, Friends, we mark another, uh, yet another terrible time for the world of magic. This time we lost Max Maven. I never met Max Maven, but I will admit to being quite struck by his passing, um, I had to take some time just to reflect on his contributions to magic and, frankly, uh, just during the reflection to learn what an amazing person he was inside and outside of magic. Um, I'm going to spare you any details right now because, frankly, there have been so many tributes to Max that um, uh, many other people better than me have... uh, have said some wonderful things about Max. But if you'd like to read what I had to say. Uh, If you go over to my blog, themagicdetective.com, you can read a few words about uh, Max Maven, Phil Goldstein, um, what I thought of him. And um, Max, you will be greatly missed. So today's subject was a must for me. Um, this, by the way, is not the big, long, 16-hour deep dive from the other day that I mentioned online. Uh, this, however, does connect kind of with that because both both of those subjects have to deal with spirits, but um, they are different takes on them. So the reason for today's topic was that there, frankly, would be no Houdini if there were no Davenport brothers. So, Without further ado, let's begin. The Davenport brothers were two brothers from Buffalo, New York, that along with the Fox sisters, helped to usher in the strange phenomenon of spiritualism. But so you know, the Davenport brothers never claimed to be contacting real spirits, nor did they deny it. They were essentially entertainers who allowed the audience to make up their minds as to what was happening. Their claim to fame was being tightly tied with ropes and placed inside a very large wooden cabinet. When the doors of the massive cabinet were closed, strange sounds instantly were heard. Bells ringing, tambourine shaking, musical sounds, rapping sounds. Why were they bound with ropes? The thinking was that the brothers could call for spirit aid, but because they were bound, it was proof that the spirits were making all the sounds and not the brothers. When the cabinet was opened, the brothers were found to still be tightly tied. This was different from the Fox sisters, who were never tied up, though frankly they could have been, and they did claim to be contacting real spirits. This concept of being tied, or at least restrained, highly influenced the spiritualism movement. Later mediums used all sorts of tactics. Some would be bound, some would simply have spectators holding their hands, but as legitimate and authentic as these things seem to be, what was really taking place, more often than not, was extremely clever deception. Honestly, it was as if they took a page out of magicians' handbooks, but they actually invented their own tricks and presented them 
as real. The movement gave birth to two branches of magic, the escape artists, or escapology, and the mind readers, or mentalism. Without the Davenports, there likely wouldn't have been a Houdini, at least not as we know him today. And just as likely to say, without spiritualism, mentalism might not look the way it does right now, and stars like Dunninger, the Zanzigs, Kreskin, and more might have not risen to the level of fame or even gotten involved in the art. The brothers were William Henry Davenport and Ira Erastus Davenport. Their father was initially their manager. Before long, as their popularity grew, William Fay took over the managing job, and then, in 1869, a young 20-year-old Harry Keller was hired as an assistant and later business manager. While in the employ of the Davenport brothers, Keller learned a lot about the business end of things. He also learned a lot about show structure, but more, he accidentally learned a method for the Davenport rope tie. This would later come back and haunt the brothers. Apparently, William Henry Davenport and Harry Keller had a falling out. William considered Keller his personal servant, and when he let Keller know as much, well, Harry decided it was time to leave. But upon his exit, he took William Fay with him. Fay and Keller went out to replicate the Davenport Act for a time. Now, fast forward, according to the book Death and the Magician by Raymond Fitzsimmons, Keller and Houdini are having a discussion on, of all things, the spirits. Houdini, it seems, was leaning towards all of it being nonsense, but he was taken back by the number of people who would relate stories that couldn't be explained. And then Harry Keller shared a story of seeing a medium named William Eglinton in 1882 in Calcutta. Keller told Houdini that during the course of the seance, Eglinton started to float up into the air, and at one point, Keller found himself afloat because he was holding on to the man. This was a very disturbing moment for Keller, as he was a skeptic, and he also knew the secrets that magicians used for levitation. There was none of that in this instance, yet the man was clearly floating in the air, and Keller along with him. He told Houdini he was still a skeptic, but he couldn't account for what took place. According to the book The Haunting of America, William Eglinton was a very popular medium. Listen to this skill set. He would have aports that seemed to appear from nowhere, phantoms that moved about, and he levitated to the ceiling, which Keller himself had witnessed. The book says Eglinton's most accomplished skill was slate writing, which he began demonstrating in 1884. And by the way, if I might mention something that I just discovered, I think magicians have misunderstood the whole slate writing phenomenon. Now, I still agree it was, it's, it's been fake, don't get me wrong, but I watched a video from the Lilydale Historical Museum, and they had a glass case filled with various school slates with messages. And these are not the one- or two-word messages that we, as magicians, are used to, but rather, these are like entire letters written in chalk. Uh, getting a single word or two from the dead or a dead loved one, uh, that would not be near as impressive or as moving as receiving an entire letter written by a loved one. 
That makes me realize why many people were fooled into believing all of this. Clever, clever mediums. By the way, Eglinton was eventually accused of fraud in regards to his spirit writing, and he eventually retired and became a journalist. Now there's an honest profession for you. Next, Keller told Houdini about working with the Davenport brothers. He said, They never claimed to have spiritualist powers, never claimed that their power came from the supernatural. But at the same time, they hired a Unitarian minister to work as the host and lecturer for the show. That man totally believed everything the brothers were doing. So the show did have conflicting messages. Keller, too, started to believe that way, but then one day he decided to test out the rope tie that the brothers were using and discovered he could free one hand and return it as if it had never been free. He told Houdini, this isn't proof that the brothers were frauds, but it did make him question a lot of things. Houdini continued to question him, and Keller finally suggested that Hey, if you want answers in this regard, why don't you just go to the source, Ira Davenport? Houdini had no idea that Ira was still alive. He knew that William Henry was dead and had assumed the brother was as well. But no, he was very much alive and living in Mayville, New York, not far from Lilydale, the birthplace of spiritualism. Houdini was surprised to learn that Ira Erastus Davenport was alive. He quickly penned a letter of introduction in early 1908 to the man. That was the best Houdini could do for now, as he was off to Europe and Australia. In the book, A Magician Among the Spirits, Houdini writes, I at once communicated with him, and there followed a pleasant acquaintance that lasted until his death. So by that, I believe there were numerous letters between Houdini and Ira. We have the contents of one, the July 19th letter from Ira Davenport. Houdini received a reply on January 19, 1909. Thanks to Mike Caveney and his incredible collection of letters and correspondence, we know exactly what the letter said. It was written up in his column, Classic Correspondence from Egyptian Hall Museum and Magic Magazine, April 2015. In addition, I also found the letter, along with additional commentary, in Houdini's book, A Magician Among the Spirits. The letter immediately corrects a mistake that is in a number of Houdini biographies. The book says that, the Daven, uh, that Ira Davenport was suffering with throat cancer. In his letter, he says, I had been several weeks in Buffalo under the care of a specialist being treated for what was at first feared might be cancer of the throat, but which is now pronounced to be no cancer, although it is a rather troublesome sort of thing, but nothing serious. He then shares with Houdini the adventure that he and his brother suffered through during their tour of Liverpool and some of the surrounding areas. Houdini was a big hit in those places. The Davenports met with skeptics and two particular brothers who followed them around and proceeded to tie them rather torturously and then a member of their own company cut their ropes, exacerbating the problem with the Brits. There was also a large anti-American sentiment in that region, and that was partially due to the American Civil War. Apparently, much of Britain sided with the South. Here's the official news report from the Richmond Times-Dispatch, March 8, 
1865. The Davenport brothers were mobbed at Liverpool, England on the 15th Ultimo. The post of that city says the audience elected Mr. Cummins and Mr. Hawley as the committee to tie the brothers. The Davenports objected at first, but ultimately agreed. Ira Davenport, who wiggled and twisted a good deal during the operation, and at its conclusion turned around suddenly to Dr. Ferguson. Mr. Cummins shrugged his shoulders and walked away, while Dr. Ferguson immediately stepped up and instantaneously Ira Davenport stood free. He at once created a large sensation by exposing the back of his hand to the audience with blood flowing from it. The excitement at this point was extreme, and although it was hardly explicable how a rope could produce a wound from which the blood would thus copiously flow, the tables for the moment seemed to be turned upon the gentleman whose brutality had been so strongly animated upon. Mr. Ira Davenport hastily, and with an indignant expression of countenance, left the stage, followed by his brother. Mr. Cummins then addressed the audience. Nearly in these words, Ladies and gentlemen, you have seen blood upon the person who has just left this platform. That blood was caused by Dr. Ferguson in cutting the rope. Upon this, an immense shout of mingled triumph and indignation arose from the audience, whose sympathies, it was at once evident, had scarcely wavered even during the sensation incident they had just witnessed. In the noise which ensued, Dr. Ferguson's explanation was to us inaudible. Mr. Cummins was heard to declare that if any medical man could certify that the wound had not been produced as he had stated, he would give five pounds to any Liverpool charity. The audience now began to take matters into their own hands. One gentleman led the way, and several others scrambled over the footlights onto the platform, with the view, apparently, of demanding their money of Dr. Ferguson. It was due to Holly and Cummins to say that they did their utmost to keep the crowd back and to protect Dr. Ferguson and Leighton, who were still on the stage. The numbers, however, were too great for resistance to avail, and the next thing witnessed was the overflow of the cabinet, Dr. Ferguson being pushed backwards into it. He immediately rose, but as immediately retreated, and we are informed that he, the Davenports, and Mr. Fay were out of the building almost as soon as Dr. Ferguson was off the stage. Shortly afterwards, Mr. Hulley was borne from the room on the shoulders of an admiring throng. The crowd on the platform at once proceeded to demolish the cabinet, and Dr. Ferguson's much-ridiculed structure will never again battle the scrutiny or beguile the credulity of a British audience. The scene during the smashing and distribution of the fragments of the cabinet was very exciting. Pieces were thrown up into the galleries, and the occupants of that part of the hall busily vied with those in the body in the scrambling for the spoils while many resorted, probably as a relief to their excitement, to the exhilarating occupation of letting themselves down from the galleries onto the stage. One person only fell into the hands of the police upon a charge of breaking one of the columns by which the gallery is supported. A portion of the right arm of a figure was knocked off by a young man placing his hand upon it as he dropped from the gallery. 
The proceedings, though turbulent, were exceedingly good-humored, and they were enlivened by a few burlesque addresses delivered from the platform to those in the body of the hall. In the meantime, some 30 policemen had arrived. They occupied the stage, and the hall was shortly thereafter cleared. Notice in that report, the crowd destroyed the Davenport's cabinet and broke it into pieces. Houdini was in Liverpool from December 7th to December 12th, 1908. He was appearing at the Liverpool Hippodrome, and to publicize the event on December 7th, he jumped chained and manacled into the Mercy River from the top of a tugboat. Here is the report from the Dundee Courier newspaper on December 8th. 1908. Houdini threw himself from the upper deck of the tug Hannah Joliffe into the Mercy yesterday afternoon. This was intended as a display of Houdini's power in escaping safely under all circumstances from handcuffs and chains from locks and bars and other impediments. The weather was particularly trying for Houdini on the occasion of his first water jump handcuffed in England. The air was six degrees above freezing, the thermometer standing at 38 degrees. Houdini took the leap bravely, and in an instant the plunge was over, the chained athlete disappearing like a shot. In a second or two, Houdini appeared above the surface, carrying the unfastened chains in one hand. They weighed 22 pounds, while the locks and handcuffs in which his arms were encased weighed two pounds, possibly two and a half pounds more. Houdini said to the press representative, The first shock of cold water nearly knocked me out of my senses, but the idea occurred to me, submerged as I was, to save my life, and I made a dash for the top. The cold, he added, numbed my fingers and made it hard to open the handcuffs. I'm glad, he concluded, that this is safely over, for in a water jump like this there is a certain element of risk against me. The tide was going out with a very strong current at the time. Houdini is a teetotaler and non-smoker and expects, he says, to quit these jumps before too long. He added quaintly and curiously, I expect the grim friend is following me up in these tricks and he may catch me someday yet. There are two other things of great interest in the letter to Houdini from Ira Davenport. He mentions that Houdini is working on a history of magic book, and Ira says, I have large quantities of clippings and material in the shape of scrapbooks dating back to 1855. Newspaper clippings, editorials of the leading newspapers of the world, magazines, letters, etc., which I will place at your disposal if you can make any use of them. Then he further goes on to invite Houdini to visit when he returns to the United States. In 1910, while performing in Australia, Houdini visited the grave of William Henry Davenport. He found the grave in disrepair and paid for its repair and upkeep and made sure to place fresh flowers on the grave. And he took a photo of the grave to share with Ira upon his return to the States. Also, while in Australia, he met with William Fay, the one-time manager of the Davenport Brothers and also one-time partner to Harry Keller before a shipwreck uh, destroyed their act and partnership. He learned a great deal about the Davenports from Mr. Fay. One of the first things Houdini did when he returned to the U.S. was visit Ira Davenport. It was an 800-mile train ride to the western side of New York, 
Ira was waiting at the train station for Houdini. They went back to his home and sat together on the porch. Houdini showed Ira the photograph of the grave of his brother, William Henry, that Houdini took in Australia. He was moved by the picture. Then the two showmen began to share stories. Houdini interjected when he felt appropriate. At one point, Ira said to him, Houdini, you know more about the old-timers and my arguments than I who ever lived through those troublesome times. They talked further about some of the things in their letters back and forth. Houdini showed him letters from his own collection from folks like John Henry Anderson inquiring just how the Davenports do their tricks. Houdini had other historical letters from his collection that he shared with Ira. This conversation went late into the night, and at one point, Ira removed a length of rope. It was time. Time to pass on the secret that the Davenports held so close for all those many years. Now, I'm not going to describe to you the Davenport brothers' rope tie. I don't give away secrets here on the podcast. However, I will say this. He did describe something that was far more elaborate than I expected. Uh, He mentioned that there were holes drilled in the cabinet through which they put the ropes through. Um, There were holes for the, uh, the feet and the legs, and then there were also holes for the wrists. So there was uh, basically the way it was described is not only were they tied to the chairs inside the cabinet, but they were also tied to the cabinet itself. So it's a lot more elaborate than what we think of as the Harry Keller rope tie that is simply tied behind your back or in front of you. They talked further about various specifics from Davenport's life. Houdini brought out a clipping from the London Post and read the details to Ira. Quote, The musical instruments, bells, etc., were placed on a table, and the brothers Davenport were then manacled, hands and feet, and securely bound to the chairs by ropes. A chain of communication, though not a circular one, was formed, and the instant the lights were extinguished, the musical instruments appeared to be carried all about the room. The current of air which they occasioned in their rapid transit was felt upon the faces of all present. The bells were loudly rung, the trumpets made knocks upon the floor, and the tambourine appeared running around the room, jingling with all its might. At the same time, sparks were observed as if passing from south to west. Several persons exclaimed that they were touched by the instruments, which on one occasion became so demonstrative that one gentleman received a knock on the nasal organ which broke the skin and caused a few drops of blood to flow. After I finished reading it to Ira, he exclaimed, Strange how people imagine things in the dark. Why the musical instruments never left our hands, yet many spectators would have taken an oath that they heard them flying over their heads. And now a quote from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle from his book, The History of Spiritualism. Houdini claimed that Davenport admitted that his results were normally affected, but Houdini himself stuffed so many errors of fact into his book, A Magician Among the Spirits, and has shown such an extraordinary bias on the whole question that his statement carries no weight. The letter he produces makes no such admission. A further statement quoted as being made by Ira Davenport is demonstrably false, 
it is that the instruments never left the cabinet. As a matter of fact, the Times representative was severely struck in the face by a floating guitar, his brow being cut. And on several occasions, when a light was struck, instruments instantly dropped all over the room. If Houdini has completely misunderstood this latter statement, it is not likely that he is very accurate upon the former. So, says Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, an avid believer in spiritualism who did not believe the Davenports were anything other than entertainers when Houdini tried to explain that to him. At some point, Ira brought up the idea that the two men, he and Houdini, should take out an international tour together. According to the Ken Silverman book on Houdini, Houdini says, By combining his reputation and my knowledge and experience, we would have been able to set the world agog. In the William Gresham biography on Houdini, it's explained this way. The game old showman proposed a world tour for Houdini and himself, he to lecture on the growth of spiritualism and the part played by his late brother and himself in its popularity, while Houdini would tie it in with his own escapes, thereby exposing the cabinet phenomenon as a product of natural causes without letting the public know how the tricks were done. Ira said proudly to Houdini, Houdini, we started it, and you finish it. They spoke on many aspects of the Davenport's career, Ira admitted to Houdini that they never claimed real spirit connection or supernatural invention. He said they let the audience make up their minds. Though he did regret that both of his parents went to their graves believing that the two brothers were real mediums. Houdini took extensive notes during the visit, and the event was capped off by a photograph of the two men, of which I believe there are two, maybe three variations of the photograph. On July 5, 1911, Ira again wrote to Houdini. He was anxiously awaiting Houdini's next visit, which would have been on the 8th of July. Houdini wrote, I was to leave on receipt of his letter, but his daughter Zelie wired me. Of his sudden passing. Now remember those scrapbooks that Ira teased Houdini with? Well, it turns out scrapbook number two survived with the family and was eventually donated to the Lilydale Historical Museum by Richard Davenport. I get the impression that even Ken Silverman did not see that scrapbook as he mentions in his book Notes to Houdini. Only the following. The method of the rope tie was also known to Harry Keller, surely before Houdini learned it. I am grateful to Ormus Davenport of Buffalo, Ira's grandson, for having taken me to visit the cottage. No mention of seeing the scrapbook. And as to his assertion that Keller knew the Davenport's secret, after reading the detailed description of the Davenport's method and knowing full well the operation of the Keller rope tie, though they both achieve a similar result, I think they're actually different. That, my friends, is a look into the friendship of Houdini and Ira Davenport. I hope you enjoyed this step back in time. If you did, please like the podcast in whatever way your provider will allow. 
Feel free to share the podcast with anyone you think might be interested. And until next time, I'm Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective. Be well and stay safe.